Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion, and the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and to you. O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Dan Gilbert, he's a psychology professor at Harvard. He just recently gathered some research that was done by a group uh, that showed, quote, that Americans are smiling less and worrying more than they were a year ago, uh, that happiness is down and sadness is up, that we are getting less sleep and smoking more cigarettes, that depression is on the rise. And what was fascinating is he looked at this quote in the bigger picture and, and tried to explain why. why. Why is this the case? And here's what he reported. He said, it's, it's not a financial problem that people don't have enough money. He says, it's a, it's a problem of uncertainty, that people don't know what's next. They don't know what's coming next. They don't know what the future holds. Uh, will I have a job in a week? Will I die from an ISIS terrorist attack? Will I be safe in a country where even now police officers are shot over race issues? Will my children be safe? Will there be a school shooting at my child's school? There's this uncertainty that is brewing. And he pointed out in this article this really fascinating experiment that was done. It was a Dutch experiment where they took two groups of people. And to the one group, the first group, they said, you're going to get intensely shocked 20 times. To the second group of people, they said, you're going to get intensely shocked three times and only mildly shocked 17 times, but you won't know when the intense shocks come. Now, can you guess which group sweated more and had faster heart rates? It was the second group. Their discomfort came from uncertainty. They didn't know when they were going to get shocked. This psalm, Psalm 62, is a psalm all about uncertainty. And it answers the question, how are we to deal with uncertainty? How are we to pray through uncertainty? So let's dive in here. Let's explore first the, the uncertainty of life. It's important to note 
with all the Psalms, but specifically Psalm 62, that David, who wrote this, did not write in a vacuum. Okay, he's writing out of an experience in life, out of a situation, out of circumstances that give, give rise to the words that we see here. Now, what was causing David's uncertainty? Look at verse three. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Verse four, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. So what we see is that there were people that were trying to take David down. And the uncertainty even rises higher when you see how they were doing it. Right? Look at the end of verse four. It says they take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So what we see here is they were doing it behind David's back. They give him a smile up front, but inwardly they were plotting his downfall. It's the great sin of Southern culture. Right? Pleasantries and smiles face to face, but daggers behind the back. And that's what was happening. And so David finds himself in a place of vulnerability and insecurity and uncertainty. And then he digs even a little bit further into the cause of his uncertainty in verse nine. Look at it. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. What an amazing word picture. Imagine trying to weigh a breath. It's like putting a, a feather on one side of a scale and then dropping weights on the other side. And that side plunges down and the feather just flies up in the air. And what we learn here is that, is that life is short. That life changes, that life fluxes, that situations come and go and rise and fall. And what's interesting here is that whether you're of low estate or high estate, whether you're a nobody or a somebody in the world's eyes, whether you're the president of the United States, whether you're a day laborer, life is short and life fluxes. And that's what brings the uncertainty. You can be riding high one day and the next day you can hit rock bottom. There's this deep uncertainty and instability. Now, what's the result of it? Now, David gives us another amazing word picture here. Verse three, it says, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. That's how he's describing his life. I've got a wooden fence in my backyard and it is showing the signs of repeated exposure to the Florida sun over the years. It's tottering. And for obvious reasons, I haven't tried this yet. But if I went up to one section of that fence and I gave it a, a firm push, I'm convinced it would just fall over. That that fence is just, it's just hanging in the balance. It's how we feel sometimes in life, don't we? That life is just, it's, it's hanging, hanging by a thread. You know, one more screaming child, one more disobedient child. Uh, one more delivery of bad news from work is gonna send me over the top. Nervous breakdown. You feel like you're right there. And there's uncertainty and there's instability, instability and vulnerability with it. Joss Whedon, he's a creative screenwriter, producer. And he is the one who's famous behind the movies like Toy Story and The Avengers. Uh, he was interviewed by... Entertainment Weekly recently, 
And uh, he was asked, and this is interesting, if he had hope that the human race is becoming smarter and better. Now here was his response. I think we're actually becoming stupider and more petty. What's going on in this country and many countries is beyond depressing. It's terrifying. Sometimes I have to remember who I'm talking to. I'll say something about how terrible things are and meaningless, and the world is headed toward destruction and war and apocalypse. And at one point, my daughter says, hey, I'm eight. She doesn't want to hear that stuff. But I can't believe anybody thinks we're actually going to make it before we destroy the planet. I honestly think it's inevitable. I have no hope. I want to be wrong more than anything. Now, here's a man who looks at our world, his life, and is absolutely convinced that this tottering fence is gonna fall, that life is uncertain, that it's unstable, that we're vulnerable at every point. So it leaves us with the question, if, if life is uncertain, then how do we pray through uncertainty? How do we deal with uncertainty? So let's look second at the uncertainty of empty hopes. Hey, when you find yourself, maybe it's right now, or maybe you've been there, when life is hanging in the balance and there's uncertainty everywhere, right? Anybody that finds themselves in that situation looks for something to grab onto for stability. David says twice in this psalm, I shall not be shaken. There's not a person that in the midst of uncertainty and instability says, this is great. Shake me more. I love being shaken, right? I love having no foundation. I love just floating and tossing back and forth. No, like a boat that tosses in the, in the storm, it's looking to tie off on something. And so that's what we do, right? It's natural response to tie off on something the problem is most of the things that we try to tie ourselves onto to find stability, to find certainty, don't work. In fact, they tend to make the uncertainty even worse. And that's exactly what David goes to here in verse 10. Look what he says. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Now, David is speaking here of vain hopes, of empty hopes, and he, and he hones in here on wealth, the idea that wealth or riches or material possessions can somehow move us to a place of certainty and get us out of this flux of uncertainty, that somehow wealth will do that. And it's interesting to note when he's talking about this person, you can see how desperate this person is for it because he'll go to whatever means to get it. Extortion, robbery. Now, wealth is just one of a number of empty hopes that we set our hearts on. Uh, we, can, we can look to success. Uh, we can look to pleasure. Uh, we can even look to, to health itself, physical life itself, to find certainty and stability. There was a, a fascinating, pretty long interview with TV personality Larry King uh, recently, and a New York Times interviewer did the report. Uh, he's, I believe, 82, and, and the report was on his fixation with dying. 
And, and listen to this interchange of what the, the New York Times interviewer wrote. Sean King, his seventh wife, told me that Larry talked so much about his demise that he started to upset, upset their teenage sons. And she had to tell him to knock it off. He kept saying, listen, I'm not going to be around much longer, boys. Whatever you do, don't let your mother put me in a home. And then the article goes on, and this article that the interviewer wrote and did, uh, talks about how he and his wife went to um, a meeting with some insurance people and lawyer people that are trying to figure out their, their estate and, and tax situation and what they would do. And after about 20 minutes, Larry King says, wait a minute, I won't be here when this happens. I won't exist. Everything in that conversation had nothing to do with me. And the writer goes on to say, the emphatically non-religious king can't see how one's life story can end well if he winds up in the ground. And it said, apparently, he's still trying to avoid death. Goes on to say, he takes four human growth pills every day and claims he feels great. But listen to this. But in the case of death, King has arranged to have his body frozen and then thawed out when researchers discover a cure for whatever killed him, the so-called cryonics approach. And King told the interviewer later that people behind cryonics are all nuts. But at least if he knows, listen to this, at least if he knows he will be frozen, he will die with a shred of hope. Listen, in the midst of uncertainty, the human heart will run to just about anything in desperation, to find something to hold on to, something to give life meaning, even if it's life itself, even if it's health, even if it's not dying, wealth, success, whatever it may be. So what's, what's really the problem with empty hopes? I mean, what really is the issue at hand? Look what David says at the end of verse 10. He says, set not your heart on them. Set not your heart on them. You say, well, what's the heart? Well, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about the beating organ in your chest. When the Bible talks about the heart, it is talking about the totality of who you are. Your will, your emotion, uh, your, your soul, all of who you are. The heart, the Bible speaks of it as the command center of life. Everything that you do originates in your heart. That's where it starts. And what David is saying here is that these empty hopes or these vain hopes, whatever they may be, can't bear the weight of your heart because your heart is the image of God in you. Created by God, he plants in you a soul and a heart that is waiting because it's made in his image. And David's saying, None of these vain or empty hopes can bear the weight. Let me give you an example of this. Sports Illustrated had named Ronda Rousey uh, the, the most dominant or the world's most dominant athlete. Now, let me, up until this past November, let me, let me give you a bit of her resume, and you'll, get, you'll see why. She was the first U.S. woman ever to win an Olympic gold medal in judo the youngest woman ever to qualify for the Olympics at age 14. Consistently one of the top three, 
ranked judo champions in the world before she transitioned to mixed martial arts and then quickly dominated and became a world champion. Going into November of last year, she was 12 and 0. Only one fighter had survived the first round with her. Eight of the 12 challengers had been knocked out within the first minute. And then November of 2015 came and she lost and she lost badly. Shortly after her loss, devastating loss, this is what she said in an interview. Listen to this. I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself. And at that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? And no one cares about me anymore without this. You see, she had set her heart on winning, on success, and it disappeared in a heartbeat, like a breath. It was taken away. That success couldn't bear the weight of her heart, nor can any vain hope or any false hope that we would put or set our heart on. So we come to our final point, and that is, then what really is the answer? How do we pray through uncertainty? How do we deal with uncertainty? And the answer is you set your heart on God, on the certainty of God. You know, and David describes here throughout this psalm that God is a refuge, he really answers two important questions about God as a refuge, as a fortress, as a rock, all the imagery he gives in the psalm. He answers two questions. One is, when and how is God a refuge? And then the second question he answers is, why is God a refuge? Now, let's start with the first one. When and how is God a refuge? Look at verse 1. For God alone, my soul, waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Then again in verse five, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. See, this waiting in silence, it's, it's, a, it's a description of what it means to have quiet rest. It is the opposite of anxiety and worry. It is a description of the heart at rest. And what I want you to note here is that David writes this not after he's been delivered from the situation. He's not writing this after he has been delivered. He's writing this right in the midst of it. And so what, what, what we learn from this is, or what we're trying, what David's trying to teach us through this psalm is set not your heart on circumstantial change. Put no trust in circumstantial change. Rather, trust God, your only rock, your only fortress, your only salvation. In his book, The, the Pressure's Off, uh, Larry Crabb recalls this story from childhood that he uses to illustrate the need for us to, to trust God in the midst of uncertainty and adversity. And he describes the situation where yeah, he, was, he was three years old and, and he wanted to be a big boy and go to the bathroom. And so he walks up his stairs to the second floor. He goes into the bathroom, locks the door, goes to the bathroom, is feeling confident and goes to leave and he can't get the door unlocked. And he starts to panic. And he starts to scream and he starts to yell and he's, he's crying out for help to his mom and dad. And of course they hear him downstairs and his dad runs into the garage, gets a ladder, and goes uh, outside the house and leans the ladder up to the window to the bathroom, walks up, 
with great strength, opens the window, crawls in, opens the door, and little Larry says, thanks, Dad, and runs out and goes and plays. And this is what he says in reflection on this experience. That's how I thought the Christian life was supposed to work. When I get stuck in a tight place, I should do all I can to free myself. When I can't, I should pray. Then God shows up. He hears my cry. Get me out of here. I want to play. And unlocks the door to the blessings I desire. Sometimes he does. But now, no longer three years old and approaching 60, I'm realizing the Christian life doesn't work that way. And I wonder, are any of us really content with God? Do we even like him when he doesn't open the door we most want opened? When a marriage doesn't heal? When rebellious kids still rebel? When friends betray? When financial reverses threaten our comfortable way of life? When the prospect of terrorism looms? When health worsens despite much prayer? When loneliness intensifies and depression deepens? When ministries die? God has climbed through the small window into my dark room but he doesn't walk by me to turn the lock that I couldn't budge. Instead, he sits down on the bathroom floor and says, come sit with me. He seems to think that climbing into the room to be with me matters more than letting me out to play. You see, God is a refuge right in the midst of the uncertainty, right in the midst of the adversity. And note what verse eight says, what David says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. That that's how he's a refuge. You pour your heart out to him. That that's prayer. That prayer is pouring your heart out to God. Now let me address the second question. Why is God a refuge? And this is important. In fact, if I ended the sermon here, this would be a, an awful sermon. Why is God a refuge? Look at verses 11 to 12. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and that you, that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. There is much to be learned about God. But much of what is to be learned about God can be reduced down to two important truths. And we see it here in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, that God is all-powerful. Verse 12, that he exerts his power towards his people in steadfast love. That those are the two truths about God that, that almost everything gets reduced to that can define his relationship with humanity from creation all the way till the end when he returns. You say steadfast love, what is that? It shows up throughout the Bible. It's all throughout the Old Testament. I love how the, uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's a children's Bible, how it defines God's steadfast love. It says the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Now what about God's power and how it's exerted towards his people? You know, the Bible describes all kinds of amazing pictures of God's power from creation to the parting of the Red Sea to the multiplying of the fish and loaves. 
but perhaps the greatest display of God's power was when he put his son Jesus on the cross. Right before Jesus went on the cross, when he got arrested, one of his disciples, Peter, took out his sword and cut off one of the ears of the soldiers that was arresting Jesus. You know, Peter was gonna defend his Lord. And what Jesus said to Peter is remarkable. He said, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know that I could appeal to my father and have 12 legions of angels come down and rescue me? Jesus was saying to Peter, Peter, do you know who I am? Do you know who my father is? One quick call and he rescues me. Now, fast forward to Jesus hanging on the cross. God is all powerful. And yet God chose, God chose not to take his son off that cross. Why? He could have, God could have exerted his power to saving his son, his one and only beloved son. But instead, he exerted his power to save you by leaving his son on the cross to die. You see, it, wasn't the, it was not the nails that held Jesus on the cross. It was his love. It was his love for you. And so God rallied all of his power and said, I'm not taking my son off the cross. Oh, I love my son. I'm not taking him off the cross because I love my people. And the only way they can be rescued is if I leave him on there and he is tortured and killed. And that's exactly what happened. Now, I want you to consider this. If God, by his power, chose not to take his son off the cross, to love you with great intention and purpose and to save you from your sin, then isn't it reasonable to think that God, by that same power, can choose not to remove a circumstance of uncertainty in your life, to love you with that same great intention and purpose and to save you. God alone is your salvation, your fortress, your rock. Will you trust him? Will you trust his son, Jesus, who died on the cross for you to be your savior, to be your refuge? Let's pray. Father, it's an amazing picture of power and love that we see culminating in your great story of redemption at the cross. That you chose to leave your son on the cross so that we could be saved because you love us. And yet, Father, there are many in this room who find themselves in a place of uncertainty, instability, vulnerability, insecurity, that are probably wondering if you do really love them, really care about them, are really involved at all. And I pray that you would take 
their eyes, our eyes, and fix them on the cross where we see loud and clear you saying, Father, yes, I care. Yes, I love you so much that I would, by my power, choose to leave my son on the cross. And that, Father, that would transform us. That we would not put our, set our hearts on empty hope, on vain hope, on things of this world that fail to, to answer the uncertainty and that we would trust you, that we would sit with you in the midst of the uncomfortable uncertainty and adversity and experience your steadfast love and that you would quiet our souls, that our anxiety and our worry would be replaced with quiet trust. Father, as we close in worship this morning, would you help us to believe what we sing, that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.